isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. All right, Tom, we're visiting an area in the world I don't think we've really covered that no, much. We've probably mentioned here and there, maybe, never in this much detail. So we're really going to look at one of the uh, biggest military and economic powers in the world and what happened to it. So we're looking at the rise but really the decline of the Ottoman Empire. And we'll definitely start off a little bit telling people as to what the Ottoman Empire really was about, because a lot of people may not really know, but it was at one point one of the largest, most powerful, and longest-lasting dynasties in, in world history. It was also an Islamic-run superpower, ultimately. And it, it ruled areas you know, of Middle East, Eastern Europe, North Africa, for more than 600 years. And when you look at what actually at, the, at its height, the Ottoman Empire included, and that also is what leads to its downfall. <laughs> too big for its own. Exactly. And too many ethnicities and too many different religions. It ruled Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, Egypt, Hungary, Macedonia, Macedonia. Romania, Jordan, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, and half of like Arabia would become Saudi Arabia, as well as like a considerable amount of North Africa coastal strip. This was rightfully so called. Oh, without a doubt. It's, it's an empire. It's, it was like we said, it's stretchy. You can look at any of the maps from that time, really hitting its, and we'll talk about it a little bit, but hitting its peak, I guess, in 1683, that was at its, when it was at its greatest extent. And a lot of the area that we would call the Middle East today was all under this control, right? A lot of the famous the Constantinople, Alexandria, right, Jerusalem, Baghdad, Mecca are all under the umbrella of the Ottoman Empire for a very long time, really 1300 to, well, till 1918, but. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about it today because it's a long decline. That's why we chose to call this not really the Ottoman Empire. We chose to call yeah. this the fall or the decline of Ottoman Empire because for the most of its reign, it's actually declining. It kind of like reached its, yeah, you know reached its peak, but they basically attempted to, they did a siege of Vienna. They tried to take over Vienna and that fails. And then from that Failed. point on, it's in decline. A variety yes. of reasons, yeah. <laughs> And for hundreds of years, it's like a slow, painful death of the Ottoman Empire. The reason, by the way, it was called the Middle East is because when Europeans began trading with Asia, they wind up calling the region the Middle East because it lay between their homes and the more distant eastern lands of India, China, and Japan. So that's kind of what gave it like this Middle East the you know, name, moniker, yeah. I guess. And it's, and it's the it's name. Stuck. It's the birthplace of three great religions that have fundamentally changed the world. We're talking about Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, Islam being the youngest of the three, but by far had the most followers in the region. This is also within this region where you have this massive Muslim empire that is created by the Turks and then the Ottoman Turks and ultimately the Ottoman Empire, which ironically also then falls back to simply becoming modern-day Turkey of whatever's left of this empire. So let's... Just briefly talk a little bit about what we know about this empire. Oh, Queen Esther Osman, right? He was the founder of the Ottoman Empire. Yep. He's his first ruler. He hailed from Antolia. 
And he was basically just a regional ruler there. He gathered other Turkish tribes, and he found the empire, which dates all the way back to 1299. Expanded through wars and conquests of the other lands in that nearby is when the yeah. empire really becomes big time because it captures Constantinople, which was the capital of the Byzantine Empire. And its capture marked the end of the Byzantine Empire, basically. The Ottomans took control of it, and they expanded their empire. So they kind of combined their growing Ottoman Empire with the Byzantine Empire, and that becomes this massive one that what history really talks about. Like we mentioned, like it, this stretches into Europe. Yeah. Like this isn't just Middle East. This is Europe, Africa, Middle East, Asia. I mean, this power significantly grows. And going as far as Greece, which is actually one in eighteen mid 1800s, one of the first ones that kind of disattaches itself from it. But you know, a few interesting things about the Ottoman Empire. I mean, they're known really for their art and science, painting, poetry, textiles, carpet weaving, ceramics. And they were huge initially, which is what gave it its wealth, in trade. Trade is what was the well, key yeah. to the wealth of the Especially Ottoman Empire. Especially controlling that much land. Like, they're going to have those trade routes. Like, and a lot of, if you look at it, they're right by the waterways. So. Especially between, like I said, between Europe and Far East. You know, they were like the wind between that made money. It was like the middleman. There's some interesting things when I looked at about this empire, though. Did you see this idea of sultans? There's this new policy that winds up emerging uh, if a sultan was someone was crowned a sultan of the ottoman empire his brothers would automatically be imprisoned to make sure that there was no one that would stand up to that power at one point it actually got really intense that when a sultan had a firstborn son they would kill all the brothers of that firstborn son if any other men were born to that sultan they would be killed to sure. ensure that the rightful heir would take and the that throne. was some of the issues that um, really led to the decline too all this nepotism all this infighting People vying for power, corruption is one of the things that eventually will lead to yeah. this Ottoman Empire's slow decline because this is how it's run. And uh, there's a lot of concern for the Sultan. I mean, there's so much threat of assassination that he more or less, when you were a Sultan, you would relocate all the time just for your safety. It was violent too. Yeah, I mean, it was an empire. Yeah. We talk about like the Roman Empire was like you know built on like blood and war, but the Ottoman Empire really was constant threat of death, which is one reason why the Sultans had always be moving and stuff like that because you never know what happened to them. There was this system the that Shire. Shire created in 1400s that required conquered Christians to give up 20% of their male children to the state. So this child that was taken from Christians would have to so convert to Islam, become a slave. They were like servicemen to the Ottoman military and the Ottoman elite. So let's get into this decline of the Ottoman Empire and kind of talk about what might have caused it and then from there we'll, right, well, like, we'll kind of go in as their, like, their results. Like they said, they conquered Constantinople, right? Changed its name to Istanbul and they really are maintaining this power for quite some time. They're adding Syria, Egypt, all this other thing, and they're really reaching this peak in the 16th century. But what happens at the height of its power, they have Western Asia, North Africa, and its army was you know, very well. They led the world in health technology. But the things that started to lead to their collapse are also what like helped them. So you have, they, they saw, there's a lot of like rival empires in the area, Hansburg, the Russian empires. They all had military size and technologies too that will eventually dwarf the Ottomans. And what you're also seeing is European countries form something called the Holy League, right? They kind of come together because they want to try mm -hmm. to stop the Ottomans from coming into Europe. I don't want to interrupt, but the Europeans also want to control the trade want, routes. Yeah, but they're trying to become a major uh, power in that region also because they want their trade routes. Yeah. Like, absolutely. So yeah. they, the Greeks and the Serbs rebel and they win against the Ottomans. And then they have a lot of wars against the Russian Empire. So it's a lot of destabilization. They don't necessarily beat constantly. It's just constant fighting. And you have the fight that they are fighting other people. You have the infighting, and that's going to weaken them. It's one of the things 
that's going to lead to their decline. If you're cooking and you're thinking of ingredients, there's a few ingredients that hinder the Ottoman Empire. One One of the big things is the industrialization aspect. While the rest of Europe, primarily in Britain, so you have to remember, there's the British Empire, there was the Ottoman Empire, eventually have the unification of Germany, which kind of gets that empire vibe. All the other European nations are industrializing at a a really rapid pace when you have the Industrial Revolution. You know, so you're talking about building machines, railroads, and really, in a sense, different countries, particularly starting with Britain, become very wealthy, while the Ottoman Empire remains very dependent on farming. Yeah, no, no. Even through like 1700, 1800s, it's just stuck And one reason farming. for that was because of all the corruption. Even though they had like a ruler, they also had all these like regional dictators, more or less, right? They didn't have that centralized structure that you were seeing in a lot of these other rising empires. I mean, at this point, we're seeing empires, we mean countries, basically, right? Britain, France, even yeah. Russia to a certain extent. And they just they just were not keeping up. Because of that, their economic growth was slow and weak, but also their technological growth was slower. So this was an empire that at one point led the world in technology and medicine, and now it, it's declining. They're not, they're not keeping up. And this is going to come to really hurt them when industrialized wars like World War I, which we'll get to, came into place. They were not ready to meet that effort. No, most of their weapons actually came from European countries. They, the munitions, heavy weaponry, iron, steel, all these things that were needed to build railroads and any form of war effort, they didn't really have that industrial power to do that. So they needed to get that from other nations, which, you know, getting that from other nations severely hinders their ability to kind of wage war. Um, it also wasn't really cohesive enough no. when you think about it. It included so many different groups of people. The sheer fact that you had various peoples, they're all part of this empire, but more or less, they all have their own dialects. They all have their own regions and histories. As I mentioned before, uh, you know, Bulgaria, Egypt, Greece, Hungary, yeah. Jordan, Lebanon, you know, Israel. Uh, so it almost like there was, it would always be impossible to have a fully strong Ottoman empire because there was really no national flag that all of these regions no, come really the, yeah, rally behind. They were kind of just brought together by name only under the rule of the Ottomans. They just couldn't stick together. They also were diverse when it came to ethnicity, language, economics, even geography. And then people wanted to break away. And that's what starts to happen in the 1800s. But they have to let Bulgaria leave. Yeah. Other countries start to leave. The, the Greece, Wars. Greece, Greece yeah, ends so up leaving. These countries leave and they don't really have any power to keep them. That's the problem. They're, yeah, they have no strength yeah. of war to go to war with them. So Greece gets its independence first from the Ottoman Empire in 1830, and that's a big loss because they're losing their foothold in Europe. Yeah. And then what winds up happening after, shortly thereafter, after Greece, you have 1878, the Congress of Berlin basically determines that Romania, Serbia, and Bulgaria are going to leave. Then you have the Balkan yeah, from Wars. 1912 to 1913, um, which is you know on the eve of World War One, and this is when they, they lose all of their remaining European territory. They lose all so it's basically a yep. coalition of former possessions. Everyone else is breaking away. We're going to break away. And this all goes into really one of the other reasons of why they fell. And that's because the population was undereducated. Yeah, I saw that. Five to 10% of its inhabitants could read. So they were mostly illiterate for the most part. And you think, well, why is that such a big deal? It's because in a empire, any society, humans are also capital. People are capital. People can do things. They're a valuable resource. And because so few of the population could read, that means they weren't turning out like well-trained military officers, engineers, doctors, other professions, what we would call like white collar professions. They were mostly just unskilled laborers. It worked for them for a while when they were trying to be this like agrarian society, but trying to transition into industrialization, people need to be able to do more than just work with their hands. They need to have these 
higher level intellects and be able to read and write and stuff like that. And they just didn't have enough people that could do that. Because of that, they were lagging far behind. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Kind of what brings us to their big failure, which is joining the wrong side in World War One. The reason why they joined the wrong side in World War One is because Britain, France, all those different nations and powers in Europe throughout 1800s undermined them. So as these little European countries like Bulgaria and Serbia, all these countries are kind of having these independence movements and they're disattaching or stealing themselves from the Ottoman Empire they are supported by the big European powers. They're like, okay, we could exploit this. Like we could use this because if we could gain this support in some sense, even Russia is like, well, maybe we could have access to the warm port. Like they want the Ottoman Empire to shrink in the Middle East. So this is also why when World War I happens, the Ottoman Empire doesn't join the British and the French, you know, they don't like the British and the French, nor the Russians, which are the good guys in World War One. Well, that's a big, they hate the Russians. There's a huge yeah. rivalry with the Russians. And one of it is what you just said, be something that Russia is still looking for really to this day, which is a warm water port. They're always going up against the Ottoman Empire. That's why these two sides took opposite sides in World War One. They did not want to be on the same side as Russia. So they side with Germany. And that's extremely unfortunate because they were already a weak empire by now. We're talking 1914, 1915. They lost all their European possessions. That's gone through various independence movements. The rest of European countries are kind of already laughing at them. What do they call them? The old sick men of Europe. Yeah, all the countries knew they were dying anyway. This empire wasn't going to last. And really, World War I was their last chance maybe to survive. Maybe if they're on the winning side in this, they get some more territory they're industrialized through the war, through Germany, which was a industrialized country at this point. So it was kind of their last ditch effort. But like you said, they choose yeah. the, the wrong side. And even when they start fighting, their army is just not mechanized. We talk about like the tactics in World War One, and we you know, listen to some of our other podcasts on how that led to a huge amount of casualties. Ottoman Empire was a great yeah. example of that. They just they were Absolutely. not ready to fight this new wage mechanized warfare that that was happening because of machine guns, tanks, airplanes. Just they were nowhere close to that. Although they did uh, happen to hold their own in the Gallipoli campaign, which yeah, shunned. But, but it was very bloody. It, yes. They lost over half them. a million soldiers. So let's kind of briefly shift gears and talk about the effects of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, essentially, after World War One, so following the armistice, right, the Ottoman territories are basically divided between Britain, France, Greece, and Russia. They're kind of like, all right, we're going to take these areas and we have these spheres of influence. But two countries in the Middle East... Uh, specifically former countries of the Ottoman Empire, decide to break away with Islamic traditions and kind of form stronger nations. And one of those is the Republic of Turkey, which is the main nation that was really the center, the epicenter of the um, Ottoman Empire. So by 1918, Turkey is pretty much all that remains of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there's a revolution in 22 where a group of Turkish nationalists overthrows the last, very last Ottoman emperor. 
right? So there's no more Sultan. He was the last one. So the empire officially ends in 1922. The group of these nationalists that overthrows him have a leader. Uh, he's basically an army officer. His name is Mustafa Kemal. Him and other nationalists basically establish the Republic of Turkey, which is the first republic in the Middle East. And that is in 1923. And Kemal becomes the president of modern day Turkey, you might say. And to modernize, he's like, okay, we're all that's left of the Ottoman empires. We need to protect ourselves going forward. He winds up modernizing. He separated laws of Islam from the laws of the nation, replaced Islamic laws with laws from various European nations, number one. Islamic religious courts were replaced with secular ones. Turkish women were given equal legal and political rights, uh, including the right to vote, elected to office, very much westernized Turkey. Also dressed in like European style, he kind of brought that in, this idea of become more European than not. Close traditional Islamic religious schools and winds up opening up secular public schools. And really huge economic growth of, in Turkey, railroads, factories, you, you name it. By the time he died, Turkey in 38 was fairly modernized. Strong. That part of the empire, former part of the empire, is definitely becoming its own you know, modernized nation. At this point, yeah. so some of the other parts like Syria and Lebanon go to the French, and then they're dealing with a lot of uprisings there. French yeah. wind up partitioning Lebanon into five different subregions. But one of big of note that's having that has major ramifications even to this day is that the British receive Mesopotamia, which it basically becomes Iraq and Iran, but they also receive Palestine. Yeah. This yeah. is this becomes a big issue because the British are actually given a mandate over Palestine in 1917 as part of the Versailles Peace Conference that ends World War One, And they basically hold that up through World War Two. even, goes into the history of Palestine and then the formation of Israel after that in 1948. Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire. It was kind of held together it wasn't a, yeah, in this loose it, it wasn't a country. It was just a land known as Palestine. Like These were not countries yep. at this point. This is just, a, it is, but it did have that land in that area that we call today Palestine. Yeah, like if you look at the maps, it was called the Ottoman Empire. Before that, it would be called Byzantine Empire. Yeah. Like they were all fell under empires. These were not nation yeah. states. So f about 2,000 years ago, Palestine was a homeland to the Jewish people. And then around 1,000 BC, Jewish kings ruled the country from Jerusalem. That was the key. Yeah. Twice the Jewish kingdom wound up being destroyed, once by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And then again, the Romans destroyed it again, the Jewish kingdom in 70 AD or CE common era. Each time Jews wind up fleeing Palestine and settling in other countries. So a few lived there in Palestine, but the majority of the country, just like the rest of the Ottoman Empire, came under Arab and Ottoman rules, so therefore became Muslim. Exiled Jews wind up you know, fleeing, going wherever. In 1800s, there's a lot of persecution, anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe, specifically in Russia, that forces thousands of Jews to escape to Great Britain, France, Germany, United States, but also thousands of them wind up immigrating back in mid-1800s to Palestine. So Britain's Foreign Secretary Sir Arthur Belfar in 1917 winds up giving this declaration where he actually promises because so many Jews wind up moving back to Palestine. And as we mentioned, after World War One, the British get the mandate, like they're in charge of Palestine. So Balfour Declaration says more or less that Britain favors a Jewish homeland, but not at the expense of the Arabs living in Palestine. It was very ambiguous, it led the foundation for conflicts that would dominate the Middle East for years to come. But Britain, when it took over control of Palestine as its mandate, both Arab nationalists and Jewish nationalists living in the area are asking Britain to fulfill the promise of this Balfour Declaration. They're like, all right, well, you said you're okay with a Jewish so do it, yeah. state. Yeah, but the British were like, well, we were kind 
kind of very ambiguous with it. We're okay with it as long as it's not at the expense of the Arabs. So basically each side here believed that they had British support. Um, you had the Arab nationalists and the Jewish nationalists, and they both looked at Britain and Britain just like never really said no to any of them or rather saying yes to both without well, saying they, no. Yeah, they were both. dealing with their own issues at the time, right? You had the, you had the, right? the depression and, and all the events that lead to the second world war. So they just were, it was something that they were never going to get around to because they you know, had to get their own house in order first. And then after the Second World War, they're just like, yeah, just we don't want anything to do with this anymore. <laughs> so they just hand yeah. it over to the U.S. Well, absolutely. So what winds up happening is 1929, there's a riot that breaks out between Jews and Arabs in Jerusalem. And like over 100 people on each side are killed. And the world is really still looking at Britain because this was 1929 in a war period. And Britain is still in charge here. They're supposed yeah. to figure this out. And they refuse to really make that call. Because, again, this all stems from the fall of the Ottoman Empire. After the Ottoman Empire falls, it is divvied yeah. up, and Britain just happens to get There's Palestine. a power factor. And then when Hitler comes to power in Germany and starts persecuting the Jews, that's when you have the numbers of Jewish people coming into Palestine uh, that grows, that causes more tension. Because the number of Jews living in the region increased from 85,000 Jews in 1914, right? 85,000, 1914. By 1933, there were 445,000 Jews. Uh, which made up about a quarter of Palestine's population. So the Palestine Arabs are alarmed by this violent demonstrations against the British at this point. British fearing like they don't want to alienate their Arab community. So they basically tighten restrictions on the Jewish immigration into Palestine. But now they're alienating the Jewish population. So you have you stranding a lot of Jews in Germany during the worst times they could stay in Germany. So now we have Jewish terrorism against British become increasingly common. So outbreak of World War II, 1939, almost like was the answer for the British. It was like, okay, like we got to worry about something else right now. And as you mentioned, war ends and they're like, we're out. You guys figure it out. That's basically what it was. So, yeah. you know, And it has not been figured out. You can make that argument. Yes, 100%. So after ruling for more than 600 years, the Ottoman Empire is often remembered for their military ethnic diversity, like we mentioned, there's so many different regions and areas. The empire's influence very much alive in present day. Obviously, Turkey, it's it's essentially what's left yeah, I remember, of the Ottoman Empire. I remember in school, they'd be like, all right, well, Ottoman Empire becomes Turkey. Like, that's what they used to say. Like, that was kind yep. of summing up. It's much more complicated than that, but I do remember that's kind of like the quick, this is what happens, you know? However, when it fell, as we mentioned, uh, it did uh, disturb a whole lot of Jenga. Well, it messed a lot of stuff. Yeah, a whole lot of Jenga had that butterfly effect, whatever you want to call it, that rippled in that area. And it's still having, you know, effects. And we said it many times all the way to today, 2023. All right. Well, I think that pretty much covers... uh... Our fall of the Ottoman Empire, don't you think? I think Absolutely. pretty good on that one. Well, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once more to listen to our talk on the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, we do appreciate it. And if you guys ever need to reach us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. And we'll see you guys again next week. Stay safe, everybody. Hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events 
that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.